Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. As Brother Tim mentioned a moment ago, it could just be his word, and his word would be sufficient. It would be enough. But because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, he understands what we relate to. And so I'm so thankful that he brushed our heart with the emotion of his presence and his power. And so I don't ever want to sit unmoved and unchanged in the presence of the Lord. That may, that may require of me a song. That may require of me a hand clap. That may require of me certainly some response. It may require a tear. It may require something. But whatever the Spirit of God mandates at that moment, I want to respond. I want to respond to his, his wooing his, and his presence. Amen. Well, I believe the Lord has just aligned this evening just right, everything that's been said, even what has been saying up to this moment has been right in line with our, our study this evening. If you will join me in Matthew 5 and 7 as we continue our series on the Beatitudes. I certainly would not be bold enough to state that this is the greatest of all the Beatitudes because all of them hold their own place in the kingdom of God. But Matthew 5 and 7 certainly holds for us a truth that is something that we should be able to relate to on a daily basis. Amen. Matthew 5 and 7, the Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so there are some days I can get by without some things, but I don't ever know a day that I don't need God's mercy. Amen. What a promise we have in, in the Psalms that, te- that tell us his, that goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. That's more than just a little bit of ink written on a page to me. That's a lot of hope to me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Amen. So if you will be seated in the, in the presence of the Lord and let's just let our minds and our heart be warmed this evening by the truth of God's word. The word merciful among the, among the Jews, certainly at the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, signified two things. It signified the pardon of injuries or perhaps a word we understand a little a little better, forgiveness, forgiveness. Another aspect of the word mercy is signified in almsgiving or assistance to those in a time of need. And so mercy in the mind of the Jew was pardon or forgiveness or assistance. It was reaching out to touch, to help, to mend. So to know the nature of mercy, we must 
first consult perhaps the root from which it comes. Our word mercy, merciful, is, de- is devised of two words. One means pity or pitying, and the other means the heart. So if we could kind of frame that this evening for a point of reference, it would be a distressed object. Mercy understands two things are in play here. One of them perhaps is a distressed object that may be, of course, a person, a situation. Secondly, a disposition of the heart through which it is affected at the sight of that object. So a distressed object or a distressed situation and then the disposition of a heart at the very sight or the knowledge of that particular situation. So it's one thing to see something. It's one thing to see a need, to understand or to find out a need and then it's another thing how we respond to that. What is the disposition of our heart? Are we cavalier about that at such a moment and say, well, they had that coming? Are we cavalier about that moment and then say things like, well, you know, I could have told you six months ago this was gonna happen. Or is our heart more bent the other way to see what we can do to try to help? You can't fix every situation, of course, but there may be things that can be done. In other words, Mercy sees something that pricks the heart and then the heart is affected by that that, it, that is seen. You know, my mind is somewhat, I'm not the benchmark for mercy, but I'm just saying that my mind, my mind is kind of shattered when I read articles and hear news stories of someone who is, and this is maybe not an everyday occurrence, but it's not an uncommon occurrence all around our world, but even in America, where we would feel that there is a great level or should be a great level of civility, but where someone is beaten to death or beaten nearly to death in the city streets, while dozens of people, I'm being very conservative in that, walk past, not wanting to get involved, not wanting to be a part of that. You just can't imagine that when you see something of that nature that something inside of you wouldn't compel you to be a part of that. I'm not talking about being a martyr here, but I'm talking about our heart being moved with compassion to try to help in some situation or circumstance. It's the emotion of the heart that is provoked by seeing someone else's condition or someone else's need. And so that, that constitutes whatever action is necessary to show mercy in that particular situation. I want to be abundantly clear tonight. I understand that we cannot fix all of the world's ills, and I will mention that more than once. We can't, we can't turn around every situation that we encounter. I, I've encountered situations much like you that there are some situations or circumstances that if you threw a million dollars at it, it wouldn't do anything, maybe change it in 90 days, maybe. And so I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that we possess the power to change everything that we encounter. But I am here tonight to address the fact that we cannot become callous by the things that we're exposed to and that we must be moved and not just moved to a tear in the eye or moved to just a nod of the head, but we must be moved and provoked to action to do what we can when we can. Obviously, that would vary from situation to situation. But Jesus said some very compelling words in Matthew. I'm gonna read two different passages here 
the first found in Matthew 10, 42. He said, whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple. Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. I, I don't know how much, I don't know how more clear Jesus could make this minuscule illustration, a cup of cool water. I mean, that is just about as minimum as minimum can get. But he said, if you just do that in the name of a disciple, that you will not lose your reward or it will not go unnoticed. And so there are times that we can offer little more than just a cool cup of water, just a refreshing for those in the midst of a storm. You perhaps cannot undo what has been done, but to reach with an arm of compassion and to try to minister to someone's life. Jesus also gives a great example of mercy in the 25th chapter of Matthew. The Bible says, beginning in verse 34, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in. Naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee? Or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw thee, we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And so when you have reached to the least of humankind, he said, you have reached to me. When you touch them, you touched me. The last line is something that I think should pierce all of our hearts in as much as you have done it unto the least of these. You've done it to me. So nothing is in vain. No, no good deed goes unnoticed or no kind gesture goes unrecorded by God. Every word, every deed, the Lord takes note of that. Those acts of mercy, those acts of kindness. You, you don't know how to package them and I certainly do not have a, a bullet list for you this evening because again, they would vary from situation to situation. I have found probably in some instances that the greatest act of mercy that I could offer someone at a particular moment or juncture in their life was to hold their hand. It may have been just to put my arm around them, just to comfort and console them. I couldn't change what had happened. I couldn't undo what had been done, but to just show some extension of mercy. And so when I touch them, according to what I'm reading in scripture, I touched him. <laughs> and so when you reach out to them, you reach out to him. And so this is very, very important that we understand because true mercy acts on a situation. You can't say to someone hungry, be full. You've got to do a little bit more than that. You can't say to someone cold, be warm. You you've got to do a little bit more than that. It necessitates action on our part. 
So thinking about doing something is not enough when it comes to mercy. We've got to get involved in the process and, and sometimes that's where there's a huge disconnect. People see the need but I don't know if I want to get involved in that. I don't know if I want mud on my boots or blood on my hands, but mercy demands, mercy mandates that we help those that are poor or comfort those that are hurting or lift those that are oppressed. And so it really boils down to this, not whether or not we can change this, not whether or not we can turn this around, not whether or not we can undo everything that has been laid out, but we're asking ourselves, what can I do to make this situation better? I may not be able to fix it, but how can we make this a little better? It should be obvious that, again, that we can't fix every situation that we come across and we can't experience every little nuance of life just to be able to relate to others. And so that's why we ought to be able to just be tender enough in our heart in general to have compassion. I don't think that you should have to have some terminal disease to have compassion on someone that has one. You shouldn't have to have some tragedy strike your family in order to have compassion on those that are involved. This afternoon, my wife and I were on our way home and we came across a very horrendous accident on the interstate and it was it was apparent because all the lanes had been shut down it it appeared to us that there must have been a fatality just by the way it was being handled and so when I got home I looked up on the FHP website and, and indeed there had been a fatality involved in that and and all afternoon and and I, I don't want to just pin it on tonight's subject but all afternoon my wife and I have mentioned it several times we just wonder who that was involved and where they were from on the interstate that could have been from anywhere, headed anywhere. Their family is affected and maybe hundreds or even thousands of miles removed from them. And, and so you just want to say, God, touch this family today. There, there's some unsuspecting soul right now at this very moment that hasn't even received a phone call. They don't even know that their family is, has been involved in an accident. Some lost their lives, others that were injured. And so God, I don't have to, I don't have to know them by name. They didn't have to be lifetime neighbors for us to say, God, would you just touch these families that are involved? There's a trickle down effect. The, the, the evidence of this could be seen for many, many months or even years to come and so God just have mercy on those we got to do what we can when it's possible nowhere do we emulate God more than when we show mercy to us who according to David were born in sin and shaped in iniquity that's what he recorded in Psalms 51 so to us who were born in this unfortunate sin filled situation we ought to ourselves understand mercy more than any. Amen. Jesus Christ extended the greatest display of mercy by becoming flesh, dying for our sins upon a cross, expressing even beyond that to say the comforter is going to come. He's going to dwell in you. It's going to be in you. And so he shows his mercy by his willingness to pardon our sins, his mercy 
fills his, our hearts with his very presence and goes with us daily wherever we are. I'm thankful that I can call his name. I, I'm glad, so glad, that I'm not relegated to Wednesday and Sunday. I'm glad it's not just this little time slot that we have carved out for uh, somewhat our convenience. I'm thankful that I can talk to him tonight. Amen. If I need his mercy this evening, if I need it in the middle of the night, I'm glad that I don't have to pick up a phone. I don't have to do anything but call on his name. I'm thankful for his mercy. I mean, there's not a moment in our lives when we are not grateful or shouldn't be grateful for his mercy. All the blessings that we enjoy, they're proofs of his mercy. And so when we show mercy ourselves, when we extend that to the poor, to the wretched, to the guilty, to the downtrodden, whoever you wanna put in this list, Amen, we are just like God. We're doing nothing less than what he would do in that particular situation. The scripture boldly declares, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. His mind didn't just think about a solution, uh, uh, he didn't think just about a, a situation, but his mind thinks about a solution to that situation. What can we do to turn this? What can we do to change this? What can we do to help this if nothing else? And so his mind motivated him to get involved in the process. When the demonic of Gadara came out, when no one else would come around, he touched his situation. He spoke into his life because he had the power to change and he changed. The next time we see him, the Bible said he was clothed and in his right mind. What a contrast from the man that is described to us in the opening chapters of Mark 5. What a contrast of a man that is sitting at the feet of Jesus being taught, a disciple, if you please, a disciple, if you please, who was just a madman living in the dunes and the dungeons that no one wanted to think about and everyone wanted to ignore, but he reached out and touched him. Let this mind be in you. I think the Hebrew word for mercy is interesting in that the Hebrew word for mercy means literally to get inside someone's skin. And so we say it a little differently. We say this, the meaning is the same, but until you've walked a mile in someone else's shoes, you may not understand them at all. But if you were to be in their skin, if you could just live in their world, I'm not talking about detached from a distance and just on looking with a little sympathy or even empathy, but if, if we could wear their skin and hear through their ears and look through their eyes and feel through their emotions, then we would understand what's going on in their mind to get inside someone's skin, to see how they view life, to feel what they're experiencing at that particular moment and then to act on behalf of those that are hurting. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he left glory, amen, he became a man and felt our infirmities. That's why the writer of Hebrews can emphatically write in Hebrews 4 and 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In all points tempted like as we are, Amen, I try desperately to remember this passage of scripture when I pray because I understand this and it is a great consolation to me that God gets it. 
Even when I can't understand my own self, God gets it. I'm praying to a God that understands my lostness. I'm praying to a God that understands my lack of vocabulary. I'm praying to a God that understands the shortness of my reach and the inadequacies of my steps. I'm praying to a God who gets it. And so there are times in prayer about certain situations, those prayers are not filled with words. They're not filled with mumblings. They're not filled with mutterings, but they are just silence because I don't know what to say. But I have a great hope and confidence. Amen. I have great hope and confidence that God understands and he feels what I feel and he can put a a word in all of those blank spaces and touch my heart. God understands. I'm praying to a God that gets it. Mercy has also been defined as compassionate treatment. Also as having the disposition to be kind and forgiving. There's an age-old story in the Old Testament that perhaps defines mercy so well. It's the epic story of Jacob and Esau. Hidden within the words of this narrative is the incredible illustration of the mercy of God. Genesis 32 and 10, I am not worthy of the least of all. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan and now I am become two bands. Jacob is in a mess, if you will forgive me. Jacob's life, is he has hit the wall. He is at the end of himself. He's told the last lie. His life is unraveled. He is out of aces, truly. He said, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him, and rightly so, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. This was not Jacob exaggerating a situation. This was Jacob realizing a situation. My life, as I have known it, is come to a screeching halt. Esau is coming after me, all of my antics, all of my tales, all of my conniving, all of my shrewd actions, have they have all slow walked me down. Jacob recognizes the fact And I think this is the greatest of all recognitions that he really didn't deserve any mercy. He deserved whatever I have coming. I've earned, I will have earned every stripe. I have it. There is no denial on his part. He clearly sees the error of his way. There's a couple of different renditions of this illustration and so I'm not sure of its accuracy but the, I guess the, the meat of the message will be the same. There's a story told of a Civil War soldier that was condemned to die for treason. His mother was beside herself with grief and wrote a letter to President Abraham Lincoln asking for mercy. In his response, President Lincoln said this, Ma'am, I have reviewed the case and see that the court was fair and I see no reason why your son deserves mercy. The mother quickly sent a letter back of reply and stated, Mr. President, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy, would it? So this is not about what we have coming or what we deserve. This is not about 
the harvest that we have reaped. It's about mercy. So after this account, Jacob then goes into that night of the wrestling match with the angel of the Lord and the next morning, Jacob arises and gathers his family and then he sees Esau in the distance and Jacob begins to approach him, but Jacob approaches him in a very unique manner because the Bible says that he bowed himself to Esau seven times. The scripture implies that he bowed himself to Esau seven times as he walked toward him. So he didn't just walk up to him and bow down seven times, but he began to bow and walk and bow and walk and bow and walk. And so Jacob was certainly signifying to Esau that it was a white flag of surrender. I, I, I deserve whatever I have coming. I haven't come here to argue. I haven't really even come here to plead my case. But when they got together, the scripture here, if you could freeze a frame of scripture, what a beautiful picture this would be that Esau falls on the neck of Jacob and tears begin to flow. They stand there and embrace as only real brothers could. And now Jacob makes this incredible statement in Genesis 33 and 10. He said, Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. Jacob had brought a huge present to him. And therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God and thou was pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that it that is brought to thee because God hath dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him and he took it. And so I want us to skip back if we can and catch the last part of verse number 10 again. Because Jacob says this, therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. Now think about that. Here's a man, a dying man, it would be fair to say. Here's a dying man that stands in the presence of Esau who for all intent and purposes now becomes his savior because mercy was extended to him. And so Jacob says this, when I looked into your eyes, it was as though I was looking into the eyes of God. Well, that wasn't what Esau was expecting to hear. Obviously, this doesn't mean that Esau in an instant had become God, but rather something that happened in Esau that caused him to have the appearance to be God-like. And so here's the challenge tonight. I wonder what we could do. I wonder how we could respond. I wonder what motivations in our heart would, would cause others to see God in us. Now this is not about some ego trip run aground but this is about being what God has intended for us to be and so what Jacob saw in, the, in, the, in his eyes was incredible and, in, and emphatically and undeniably it was undeserved mercy. That's what he saw was mercy. A man that he thought was going to take his life, extended life and so he deserved the judgment that Esau had promised, but instead he receives mercy. And more importantly, take a look at Esau. It's not just fair to keep the camera focused on one. He originally intended to kill Jacob, but now he's holding the very man in his arms, weeping on the neck of the very man that he intended to kill. So what happened? What happened? 
somewhere along the way, I believe that, that Esau came to the realization that it was more important to be right with people and to be right with God than it was to have blessings and birthrights and things and in and on and on and on. The list could go. Somewhere Esau came across this understanding that it's just more important to be right with God than it is to win this supposed battle because as it has been stated many times, you can, lose, you can win the battle and lose the war. And, and so Esau realized, I, I just got to lay this down. I'm gonna set this down. And what happened was when he released Jacob, he released himself. Amen. So he became the very imitation of God, emulating him by showing mercy. Also a point well worth making here is the fact that Esau never mentioned this matter again. It was over. When it was over, it was over. We don't find another word, another conversation. It was ended. We need the spirit of mercy that says the same thing. Sometimes our positions or blessings or talents and the list could go on and on is nothing to get a bad spirit about. It's, it's not anything to lose out with God about. I would rather be in right relationship with God than to have this or have that or whatever you want to put in that column. It would never measure up to being right with God. And so it's so much more important to be merciful because we ourselves have had such mercy extended to us. That's why it's so important to never forget where God has brought us from. Never forget how easy it is to assume that we weren't really all that bad. You know, life has a way of later down the road, a few miles down the road, handing us a pair of rose-colored glasses. But every now and then, we need to slip them off and look at our lives as it really was. We need a spirit of mercy, a spirit of mercy. Now, the reward of being merciful is summarized in this passage the Bible says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. There's not a person alive that doesn't need mercy and I'm thankful that God has been merciful. But I also realize that, that I also need the mercy of God. I haven't made heaven my home. I, I haven't made the last bad decision. I haven't made the last wrong turn. I need the mercy of God. But according to this beatitude, if I expect to receive mercy, I need to be merciful. I must be merciful. The Bible says in Luke 11 and 4, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew records these words in 6 and 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Look at that passage now with passion. Amen, forgive us as we forgive. Amen, forgive us as we forgive. Amen, in other words, if I'm going to continue to receive the inflow of God's forgiveness and his mercy, then I need a constant outflow of forgiveness and mercy in my life. Amen, I wanna make sure, I wanna make sure that I give mercy out in the same container that I want mercy back. Amen, I don't want mercy. We all want mercy coming into our lives in the boatload, so let's not give it out in teaspoonfuls. I wanna give it out in the same spirit that I want it coming back home to me in. Amen, Psalms 18 and 25 says, with the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. And so the, our only way to continued mercy is to practice mercy. 
And so I, I don't know a day, I don't know a man, I don't know a woman, I don't know a, anyone in this church, I don't know anyone in this world that doesn't need mercy. So you better give all of it away and you better is, extend as much as you possibly can because you never know when you're gonna need that same amount and more to show up on our front doorstep. So as born again believers, we will be given an abundance of opportunities to show God's mercy because certainly the world that we live in is full of guilt, full of sorrow, full of godlessness. That's the world that we live in. So these opportunities to give mercy away. A number of years ago, there was a lady that had taken the life of another lady. And she had killed her or murdered her in such a fashion that after the court found her guilty, she certainly qualified, this is the right language, to receive the death penalty in the, the state they were in. Certainly she fell within the guidelines of the death penalty. The family who had lost their loved one, the children, most especially who were now grown, at first... They wanted that. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. This is only fair. You may think that this was just a defense attorney's ploy or plot, but somehow I just read a little bit more into this. That the defense attorneys sent a petition to the family to consider this, especially the children. Do you want to leave this lady's children with the same plight that you're living with? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is this what you really want? The law is on your side. Her crime is horribly against her. The jury will probably go your way. Is this what you really want? And when they broke it down in bite-sized pieces and they realized that they were going to leave children in the same condition that they were in, they decided to extend mercy. Mercy. And so I think God helped me to be merciful. I know I, I battled a little bit to even use this illustration ever, certainly to use it again. But the man who served as the presbyter of our section for many, many years, Brother H.Q. Griffiths, several years prior to my ever even meeting him, had a grown son who was working a part-time job delivering pizzas and two young men in a sinister fashion, fictitiously ordered a pizza to do nothing more than rob him in the process of that robbery for $30. Brother Griffiths' son lost his life. It was just unthinkable. Unthinkable. We kind of think that sometimes those things are not going to happen to us. They're not going to happen in our world. I remember hearing this story from Brother Griffiths himself. He told me this story personally. I will never forget sitting in his pickup truck and he began to talk to me about that day in court when he 
had requested to have a meeting with these young men and of course the opposing attorneys and their family would not, would not acquiesce to that because they didn't know what he was up to. But God saw his heart and in what some might think an act of fate, somehow they all wound up on the same elevator together after the sentencing. And Brother Griffith said to these men, he said, I want you to know that my wife and I forgive you. And we don't want this to be the defining moment of your life, but somehow we hope that there's enough life left over that you can make something of yourself. You know what I feel in this auditorium right now? I feel such a huge shadow that's cast with stories like that because we're all asking ourselves inside, could we do the same thing? God help us not to answer that because we don't know, but we hope. We hope that somehow that we would not have an eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that we would have not that spirit, but somehow to extend because you see hate and bitterness and unforgiveness, that's not going to bring my son back. That's not going to change this circumstance. That will not undig the grave. And so I need to do what God would have me do. And I'm gonna tell you what, I felt, I felt like I was standing in the presence of a giant of a man. Amen. I'm gonna ask our musicians to come. We live in a world that is full of guilt and sorrow. We live in a world full of godlessness. It's evident. So we must have sympathy and do what we can to alleviate the afflictions of people around us. We can do that by helping them biblically overcome sin. We can help them do that by trying to minister to the apparent needs. But in order to do this, we can't just have pity in our thoughts only. We can't just think about it and ponder We can't just think how sad, but we have to roll up our sleeves and do something about it. We have to be merciful in in decisive ways, not just moving and having a lot of activity. And so as a church, one of the things that we try to monitor here is to not just busy, to be busy for the sake of being busy. Don't just be marching in place so that we can work up a sweat and say, well, we've been doing something. We wanna be intentional about what we're doing and and I say all the time to our leaders if there is something, a ministry that has served its course or run its course or something that's dying, let's not just pretend that it's not dead. Let's, let's make sure that our efforts are not in vain and that our time and energy is well spent. We need to be just good stewards, not just of dollars, but of time and energy and effort as well. And so we need to be merciful in decisive ways We should not just be busy for the sake of being busy, but to be intentional with our efforts, to make sure that we are touching someone. You don't always know. Sometimes in outreach ministries especially, you're casting your bread upon the water, and so you don't really know where that seed's gonna come up. I shared with you, I think it was at camp meeting last year, or I think it was at camp meeting last year, of a young man that I baptized in 2001. I 
and he got the Holy Ghost. I heard all these years that he was still in church, but I never, I'd never had a chance to meet him ever again. And he came up to me at the end of camp meeting. And so 15 years or 14 years removed from the situation, he was still in, in the church living for the Lord and involved in the ministries of their church. And so you can't always tell overnight and in the instant that what you have done has had any recourse at all. A few Sundays ago, I was in my office, most everyone, if not everyone, had left. I was wrapping up a few things and putting away my computer, and the phone rang, and I, I answered the phone, and this man on the other end introduced himself, and, and he said, I, I'm, I'm sure that you don't know me, but I just wanted you to know something. He said, I was in the hospital a few days ago, and I got a card that said, we're praying for you. So I just wanted to say thank you to whoever mailed that card. So I went home and I called the individual who mailed that card, who mails cards all the time, but you don't always get a phone call saying thank you. You don't know sometimes if it hits its intended target, but every now and then, on that same note, a few days before, a couple of weeks before that, I received a picture one morning. I was uh, one, just getting my day started one morning. I got a picture, a text on the phone, and someone had snapped a picture of that card and said, we got this today. Just wanted to say thank you. So you never know. But we want to be intentional. But we should not just be busy. We need to certainly season everything with times in prayer and seeking God for ways to help us make sure that we're being practical in our approach. Amen. To the uninformed, we want to be instructional. We want to help them. To the careless, we want to try to warn them. To the those that are imprisoned by sin, we want to show them the way that you can be truly set free. John said, if the Son therefore make you free, you shall be free indeed. So being merciful is certainly not encouraging laziness, nor is it providing a path for people to continue in sin. But being merciful is teaching people the abundant life that can be found through only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the church has to teach the word on how to live according to God's will for them. Our biblical mandate to lift up the Lord. And so where, where do we start? What better place, I ask you, than being merciful? Merciful. This beatitude comes with this final wonderful promise. Four words. They shall receive Mercy. Mercy. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> Today, while we were out, we passed several banks. I didn't just pull into any of them go through the drive through and say, I'd like to make a withdrawal. The primary reason for not doing that is because I've never made a deposit there. So they would look at me like I was the crazy man that I would be if I pulled in and said, I want to make a deposit. As a matter of fact, they may be pushing a button under the counter <laughs> at that particular moment. <laughs> But if I walk into the place where we bank and I know I've made a deposit there, I walk with confidence. I'm not ashamed. I'm not bashful. I've already put something in this account. I've got a right to be standing on this side of the counter 
Amen. I hope you understand where I'm going with this. When we stand in the presence of God and we have extended mercy, I want you to know, I think we have a right to say, Lord, I need some mercy here. I need some mercy here. Amen. I wonder if we would just let the Lord touch our hearts this evening. Would you let God just minister to your soul right now? Lord, I love you today. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you, God, for the presence of hope that we have felt in this service. God, it's not hope unfounded. It's not hope in the shifting sands of time or, or this world's this world's economy, but God, it is the hope in your everlasting and unchanging and irrevocable word. Thank you, Lord, today, God, for your strength, your spirit, in Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.